Well, hello, church. If you would open to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to read the first seven verses. This is God's Word. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the Word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let the adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing you wear, but let the adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And so, Father, as we turn again to study and think about this institution of marriage that You designed, we pray that You would take all of the ways that men have sought to bring down, to make common, to twist and pervert and rid this institution of its glory, rid our minds of those things. And Lord, we ask that You would renew our minds to think what You have said to believe what You have said, and most of all, Lord, to obey what You've said. Lord, we pray that You would help us in this hour, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are um, week six on this marriage uh, series, and we've come to the Christian wife. And um, that's probably about, what, 30-35% of you in here, maybe. Uh, maybe an extra 10% will become uh, Christian wives. But I'm thinking also about how uh, young men in here need to listen to this as you may one day want to marry a, a wife and you'll want a Christian one. I'm thinking about husbands, how we're to lead uh, and encourage our wives and we need to understand this. And even fathers as we raise our daughters uh, up toward this. Um, this is this is a word for everyone. Uh, before I get into First Peter three uh, on on the role of the wife, I think it's important that we we back up and get the context uh, because we're not just studying a wife; we're studying a Christian wife, and therefore we need to back up and see the larger context of First Peter, uh, which I think gives us attention for this woman. Uh, this this woman is, uh, according to, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 1 of this book, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. That's the tension. 
That's the tension for this Christian wife. She's elect. She's an exile. So at one level, the Christian wife in her purest form is an exile who's called, uh, for example, in chapter 1, verse 14, an obedient child. So before she's a wife, before she's a mother or anything else, she is a, an obedient child of God. Not to, it says, be conformed to the passions of her former ignorance that she was once ruled by. But it says, verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So the thrice holy God takes this woman and makes her ambition to be holy. And that marriage and, and motherhood, if God gives children, become a means toward that end of her seeking to be holy as God is holy. This woman is very valuable. She's, she's immeasurably valuable. Look at verse 18. It says, She has been ransomed from the futile ways inherited from her forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. So the wife's value isn't in her husband. It's in Christ. It's in Christ. Uh, that is who she is as, in, as one who is elect, but she's also an elect exile, it says. So although she is pure and cleansed and holy, she is uh, journeying. She's, she's moving forward with a lot of opposition. Like the first woman, Eve, who met the serpent, and the serpent met her in Eden and began to lie to her. That's the same experience of every Christian wife. It's continuing on outside of Eden. And all the worldly uh, sights and smells of Babylon and Egypt still lure her and entice her. All the luxuries, all the pleasures available in the world are calling to her. Flesh. And then even in the home, there's a curse we studied a few weeks ago that she has to bear up under and deal with. Uh, it says in Genesis 3.16 uh, that the woman's desire will be for her husband, or I, I, ESV translates it, against her husband, just like the parallel verse in Genesis 4, uh, seven says sin's desire will be for or against Cain. And so she has to uh, not only just be this pure, spotless, clean elect of God, but she has to do that as an exile with opposition at many levels. And you say, why is that important? It's important because we need to remember being a Christian wife, a Christian wife is very hard. Very, very hard. Um, it is a daily battle. It is a daily fight. And it's a fight that must be fought with fear. It says in verse 17 of chapter 1, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So there is a healthy fear that could be in the soul of a woman that I could fall away from the Lord. There's a healthy fear in the heart of a woman that she could be pulled away by the world, by the flesh, by the devil, uh, away from the Lord and away from her husband. And there's a healthy fear in her soul, that she must conduct herself throughout the time of her exile. Now, think about this. 
This is old. Okay? People have been reading this verse for almost 2,000 years. But let's just go back 100 years from our day to 100 years ago. Did women have these same struggles? Did wives have these same struggles? Did wives 100 years ago still have to deal with the serpent's lies, with the curse that was affecting how they viewed their husbands? Uh, did they 100 years ago have imperfect husbands that they were called to submit to? Now, I would argue, actually, that 100 years ago, and this may get me in trouble, there's my preface, um, it was harder to be a Christian wife in some ways than it is today. You think about 130 years ago, uh, how hard life was. It was extremely hard. The average Westerner lived on less than a dollar a day in today's money. Uh, that's the amount the UN regards as abject poverty. Women would have been likely pregnant from 14 to 40 years old on and off because they would have lost many children at birth and would have wanted to continue to try to bear more children because of how many they would have lost. If you were a woman who survived your births, you, you could have lost your husband to disease or war. Many women had multiple husbands because of death. Actually, my mother uh, was looking, told me a few years ago how she was looking at our family tree of my family history, and she was amazed at how many marriages there were, not because of divorce, but because of deaths. And a wife, uh, if she lived, and however long she lived, would have spent the vast majority of her time in back-breaking labor with no air conditioning or heaters, so she would have been extremely hot when it was hot or extremely cold when it was cold. Um, men would have been out working crazy hours to try to provide just a little for the home and women would have virtually been there alone uh, doing all that they had to do. Before 1895, that was normal. Until the last centuries, medical advances, economic and scientific breakthroughs, new technology uh, that affects things domestically, and in the home, and you say, why do you say all that? Well, because I want to make the point, in some ways it was harder to be a wife back then. But in other ways, I think it's harder to be a wife, a Christian wife today. What do I mean by that? Well, I, go back a hundred years. If you were to put a, a lot of the teaching for a wife before a woman a hundred years ago, even a non-Christian woman, she wouldn't have seen it as very crazy. It wouldn't, have, it wouldn't have seemed outlandish. But if you put, even before many Christian women today, what Scripture teaches about a Christian wife, it seems to them crazy. It seems absurd to so many even Christian women in our day. And you say, well, what is the problem for that? Don't we all know? It's feminism. It is feminism. And I've, I've taught a lot about feminism over the years. Um, I don't want to get into kind of an in-depth uh, analysis of feminism, but I think G.K. Chesterton had a little quote where he talked about the effects of feminism on marriage in particular. And listen to how in one sentence he encapsulates this. He said, feminism is the idea that women are free when they serve their employers, but slaves when they help their husbands. Let me read it again. Feminism is the idea that women are free when they serve their employers, but slaves when they help their husbands. 
And many of you know that idea has not just stayed outside of the church. It has made its way into the church. Uh, It's made its way into biblical interpretation so that many of the passages on biblical manhood and womanhood have, uh, have, uh, have adopted these feministic ideas. Uh, we call this, there's a term for this, a word for this, it's called egalitarianism. It's basically Christian feminism. Uh, and it's affected how many people understand many passages of Scripture. Let me give you an example um, to help us see how much we're affected by this. Let's say a young uh, girl comes up to her mother and says, uh, Mommy, what is a woman? What is a woman? And what if the, what if the mother said, well, uh, a, a woman is, is, uh, is someone who must be humble and uh, someone who must love and, and be holy. A thoughtful child is going to say, but aren't men to be holy and loving and humble? So how is a woman to be holy, loving, and humble in a way that a man isn't. And now we're back at the original question. Children need questions answered for their development in their genders like this. So we can go back to, as we've spent time in the last six weeks, going back to Genesis 2 and showing how God designed men and women differently, how women came from the man and the New Testament authors repeatedly go back to this. Or you could come to our passage in verse 7, and you could, you could point out to your child, let's say to this daughter, if the mother's having this conversation, and you could read this verse in 1 Peter 3.7 that says, giving honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. And you could ask your daughter, uh, Regarding the weaker vessel and the woman being the weaker vessel, does that mean she's less important than a man? And hopefully the little daughter would say no. And then you could say, well, what does weaker vessel mean? And then hopefully they would say uh, something along the lines of it it means we're physically weaker. It's a physical thing, uh, generally speaking. And then you could ask this, did a woman become a weaker vessel when she got married? Or is this something that is in accord with nature? And you could explain, this is why female sports exist. We wouldn't have female sports if men and women were not stronger and weaker vessels. If they were equal, we wouldn't have female sports. Uh, You could explain uh, bone density and lung capacity and muscle mass and other type of scientific proofs we have of stronger and weaker vessels. And then you could ask your daughter, did God design women physically weaker than men? And if so, what's a man supposed to do about that? And it says in the verse, he's to do this. Give honor to the woman as the weaker vessel which says to the man, he's designed to protect her, to provide for her, to honor her because of who she is and how God made her. Now take a teaching like that. Does that change with the culture? 1 Peter 3.7 or Genesis 2, how men and women were created or all these other passages we've studied. Do they evolve with the culture's evolving definitions? Or are these things not fixed? Even though culture may change, 
uh, our vision for manhood and womanhood as Christians doesn't. And would that not affect how we raise our daughters? And would that not affect how we raise our sons on many different things? You know, my, my experience pastorally is that most Christians and those of us who were raised in Christian homes weren't raised with these gender distinctions. We were raised in androgynous ways, genderless ways. Taught about Christianity as if both genders lived out Christianity exactly the same. And here's the problem when you do that and when you have that understanding. Then when you get married, you come to a passage like this and you go, what? Wife submit? Husband lead? And the, guy, and the man, you know, the guy reads the verse and he's like, what do you mean I have to provide? How did I get that extra burden of responsibility? And the woman looks at it and goes, submit? What, is that, what does that have to do with anything? It seems arbitrary. It seems random. It, it, it doesn't seem to make any sense. Because these things haven't been rooted in nature and in God's creative design and distinctive design for the glory of womanhood and the glory of manhood. So the discussion between gender distinctions, what I'm saying is it doesn't start at marriage. It starts in the womb. It starts with how God designs us differently. Now one of the distinct glories is what I would like to call it, a distinct glory of womanhood is the role of wife. It's not the only distinct glory of womanhood, but it is one. And I want to highlight five things about it that a man should not attempt to do or be. These are distinct glories, particular glories for Christian wives. Uh, and here's the first one that we see in the passage in verse 1. Her submission. Look at it. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. Now let's be, let's be clear what this means and doesn't mean. Submission is only, it says, to your own husband. Not to every husband, not to every man. And there are people who actually misread and misunderstand this and think they're to submit to every man out there. It's not what it says. It says to your own husband. Additionally, submission does not mean agreeing with your husband with everything your husband says. How do we know this? Well, in the context, verse 1, she's a Christian, he's not. She's obeying the word, he's not obeying the word. In the context of 1 Peter here. So, she's not to submit to his ideas about God. She's not to submit to his ideas about the Bible or reality or everything that really matters. She's to take a different view. Because he's wrong on all those issues. Submission doesn't mean you have to agree with your husband on everything. She must disagree at times because she's Christian before she's wife. Additionally, we could add this. Submission does not mean that you leave your brain or your will at the wedding altar. Uh, I think I argued this pretty convincingly a few months ago with the sermon on Abigail, who was way smarter in virtually every area than Nabal, her husband. She was more intelligent, she was wiser, she was, I mean, on every level she surpassed him, but she didn't use that to suppress him, to take him down, to, to, to flaunt it or lord it over him. What did she do? She used it as a way to help him. She, she showed the distinct 
nature and glory of womanhood by using her greater intelligence and wisdom than her husband to help her husband. And then we know submission doesn't mean avoiding every effort to change your husband. Verse 1 explicitly says, wives be subject to your own husbands so that, key phrase there, if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. What is she trying to do? She's trying to change them. That's why couples who say, you are perfect the way you are, are lying and they're wrong. Priscilla should look at me and say, he is far from perfection and there's many things that need to be changed uh, about him. She is right, actually. She is loving to agree with God on that interpretation of me. She would be wrong to not agree with God that there is still much that needs to change about me. She would be wrong to get mad about it, bitter about it, upset at me for all my imperfections, but she's right to agree that they exist and that they shouldn't exist. She actually should want that. We talked about this last week with husbands, didn't we? That a husband should also try to change his wife. It says about the husband in Ephesians 5.26, he is to cleanse, to wash, to sanctify his wife with the word. So the husband is trying to change his wife as well. But pause, there's something interesting here. They're both trying to change each other, but they're doing it in different ways. There's a distinct difference in the way a woman changes her, her, her spouse and the way a man changes her spouse. In Ephesians 5, to the husband, it says basically change your wife by the washing of water with what? The Word. 1 Peter 3, change your husband, ladies, without a word. By the conduct, the respectful and pure conduct. That's a distinct difference. Both aimed at changing, but there's a different way in which you do it. And, and, and the how is the, is the key issue, isn't it? How are we going about changing our spouse is important. Let's think about the words of a wife for a moment. Um, it's the second point. Uh, I think there's two wrong uh, ditches that maybe a wife could fall into when it comes to viewing her words. Maybe she could say, there's nothing I can do to change my husband. God needs to do it. Nothing I do matters. And that's a fatalistic view of her role and her power and her influence. And it's wrong. She doesn't understand God uses means toward certain ends. The, the other option is that many women seek to change him with nagging words. Just a repeated beat him down. Uh, because, and the logic might be, well, he's heard the verses. He heard the sermon. He knows the teaching. He gets all this stuff. What he needs is me to help him, remind him, and press it in a little bit so you can see the importance of this. And that's not only unwise, that's how you destroy your home. According to Proverbs. Proverbs 19.13 says a contentious, or we could translate it combative, argumentative wife is a continual dripping. Drip, 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 drip. You go, that's not that bad. Well, <laughs> um, in some countries, this is a form of torture. 
You know, drip, drip, drip. We'll be back in 20 years. And they leave them there. And there's men who endure 40-year marriages of dripping. And it's not a blessing. And it doesn't change him for the good, Proverbs says. Proverbs 21.9 It is better to live in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Now, I've said this many times over the years. Uh, I'll say it again here. I believe this is why uh, man caves exist. I believe it's it's a new modernized version of the corner of the rooftop. We don't architecturally build houses where a man would want to go on the corner of his rooftop, and at least not in America, but people build garages and it becomes a man cave to escape the continual dripping. Or hobbies, or excessive work, or the bar. There's lots of ways to escape the dripping. But what I'm trying to point out, and what Proverbs is saying, is it doesn't help. It doesn't change him in a good way. And it's not right for the man to flee, but it is natural. It is natural. Now, what if a... What if a wife were to day after day, rather than nag or or repeat things that she wants her husband to do, what if she were to just thank him for things that he did do right? He comes in the door after work and she goes, I'm so thankful for you working hard for our family. Really appreciate day after day you committing to provide. What if if she later in the day said, "I, I like how you did such and such. Now, she may have seen 10 or 20 other things she didn't like, but what if she just decided to highlight the one thing she did and to affirm that? How might that affect the man? How might that land completely different? And and I really believe this is the difference between building up a home and tearing it down. Ladies, your role and your influence in your home is extremely powerful. The question is, will you use it to build up or to tear down? This leads to a third category of the the Christian wife's emotions. Now look at verse 4. Let the adorning, let your adorning, be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. So we might call this gentle and quiet spirit her emotional state toward her husband. Um, What is a gentle and quiet emotional state toward a husband? Uh, Let me just say, I guess, what it's not. What it's not is, uh, it's not a weaponizing of emotion. We've talked about this related to the culture. A few years ago, we did, talked about the weaponization of emotion and how that's happening in all these different areas in the, in the culture. But think about it in relation to marriage. The weaponization of emotion. What, what, what I argued back then about this was when objective truth is removed, all you have is relative truth. Expressed in emotion. Hurt. Disappointment. Anger. You just weaponize emotion because objective truth, real truth, has been removed. And this can happen in a marriage. When she, the wife, is not trusting the objective biblical truth in Scripture, submitting to it, 
as the plan. She'll create another plan and seek another power. And I don't think this is intentional. I don't believe any Christian wife intentionally does this. I think this is a knee-jerk reaction to a failure of a man that uh, needs to at least be uh, acknowledged. That many wives, without knowing it, can begin to weaponize emotion. And look, look, let's be honest about this. It works. It works. Especially if a husband doesn't want to be the, the garage dweller and go off to the bar and grab all these hobbies and leave the family. If he wants to be present and loving and intentional, he has to make a decision. He has to make a decision. Do I submit to her emotional tactics and avoid conflict? Option one. Option two, do I not submit and live with the consequences of the anger and disappointment for maybe a few hours, maybe a few days? That's a decision he he is forced to make when emotions are weaponized. And Priscilla has, uh, my wife has warned many women over the years about, it's just... I don't understand this as a man. I hear women talk about these things. It's easy, and women have to be very careful not to uh, take advantage of a man's weakness and use emotions as a power play. It's very possible to do that, and it's a very easy win. The Christian wife just says, I'm not playing those games. I'm not going to do that. She's after godliness. She wants to do what's pleasing in God's sight. She wants to trust God's promises that her respectful and pure conduct actually has far more power than any of those other things. She's she's learning to, as verse 4 says, uh, cultivate the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. She's not blazing her own trail, in other words. She's following holy women who hoped in God that have gone before her. She's watching and learning from holy women who have gone before her. This is why I think women, ladies, y'all should read Christian biographies of of godly women who are exemplary in things. This is why I think women need women-only spaces where it's women-only and men don't go there. Like the TN teaching this Saturday. And by the way, i got to say to to Marianne here, um, deeply thankful for the tea and teachings that for I think at least 12 years that you've done, the countless one-on-one meetings you've had with other ladies in the church, women-only places, and many of you women do this. You get together with other women to talk about women issues, which is what Titus 2.3 says. Older women are to teach what is good and to train the younger women to love their husbands and children, and to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands. So the Word of God may not be reviled, because that's what's at stake. The Word of God could be reviled. And so I'm just, I'm so thankful for women here who understand pastors can only go so far with this. Men can only go so far with helping women embody so much of what womanhood is. Other women are needed. And, but here's what I can say. I can preach the verse here. The ultimate verse here for womanhood in this passage is verse 5. This is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. 
And so ladies, yes, you need to learn from other ladies, but you will never find the true joy and power of being a wife until you learn how to hope in God. That's where it is. That's where the power is to endure a hard marriage to a very fallen, stubborn man. That's where the power is to hope in God. That's how you submit to a very imperfect, flawed husband. That's how you find the courage to bring in, in really difficult situations, bring in a pastor, bring in a counselor, bring in someone else to help out, to give discernment. Only if you hope in God. Let me say it like this. Sarah could call Abraham lowercase Lord because she knew he wasn't her uppercase Lord. Her hope was in God, not her husband. And this gets at her beauty, which is the fourth category. Verse 3, do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing you wear, but let, the, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. So she's not trying to just get uh, the attention of man. She's not trying to get the affirmation and jealousy of other women. She wants God's approval. Uh, Priscilla and I were on a date uh, recently where we were at a store and she was shopping and I was standing there and she, she uh, kind of joked and said, I'm so uh, old-fashioned now. And she was meaning her, her clothes and clothing choices, I think. But I, I said, uh, more than you realize. But I wasn't talking about fashion. I was talking about her whole view of beauty. Because when I met my wife at, at 19 years old, straight here from Brazil, she had very worldly ways to understand beauty. She had not yet cultivated what it's talking about here, this, this hidden beauty, this distinctly Christian type of standard for beauty that look at what it says. This is not the 1950s housewife beauty standard here. This is 2,000-year-old beauty standard that it has here. Beauty not being external. The hidden person of the heart. Guys, our culture says things like this to ladies. Ladies say this, oh, you've got such a good heart. You, you, you know, your heart's so good. I think many times what that means in our day and age is because you embody all the feministic ideals. It doesn't mean what this is saying. This has a context to the inner beauty. And it says that she doesn't have a massive emphasis on braiding of hair, gold jewelry, clothing, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now let me push back on something because I've heard people say this, not in our church, but just at large. A husband should help his wife define what beauty is or or, uh, come up with her standard of beauty. And I just want to say an absolute no to that. What What if her husband doesn't have biblical categories for judging beauty? What, what if a woman marries a man whose mind is so polluted that he values external beauty, her body shape, her size, her weight, her appearance, over the inner beauty? Should she listen to him? 
and allow Him to change her categories that God gives her right here? No. Absolutely not. So it is natural and good for a woman to want to beautify herself for her husband. I think that's good and righteous. You could argue that from many places in Scripture. But it's wrong for a wife to, ref- to let her husband or the culture tell her external beauty is more important than the internal. And I think a, a Christian wife pursues daily that inner beauty which in God's sight, which is the approval she's ultimately wanting, it says is very precious. You see how th- this woman is not weak. You see this? Like, women don't do this in the culture. This is not how people think. She's pushing against all the voices around her to, to take this view. She's resisting all the propaganda about external beauty that's going on and saying, this is my standard of beauty. This is my standard of womanhood. This is my role as a wife. You know, that's no weak woman. This is an incredibly capable, intelligent, strong woman fighting to hope in God when everything around her is pulling her away from her husband, away from the Lord, uh, into fear, into anxiety. And if this Christian wife is anything, this woman is courageous. She's a courageous woman. That's the fifth thing we need to see. Look at verse 6. Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Why does it say not fear anything frightening? We understand why I would say if she does good, but why not fear anything frightening? I'll tell you why. Because it is absolutely terrifying to have to submit to an imperfect man who can not only mess up your life, but your kids. That's very scary. But you're Sarah's children if you do good and don't fear anything frightening. See how deep this gets to the soul of a woman, a wife? So if a woman is capable, educated, intelligent, devoting herself to good, not fearing anything that's frightening, you are looking at a very, very courageous woman. She just is. She she just is. I I say this all the time, the weak women are the feminists. And I don't mean that in a derogatory mean way. I just mean that they really are the weak ones. The strong are what are doing what it says here. This takes a spiritual power. This takes a, a God enabling for a woman to bear up under this. And it, you know, it's very tragic that, that many women are unable to delight in the feminine strength that has a distinct texture from masculine strength. And I know, I know feminists will mock this. I understand that, uh, that our culture and many in our day and age would say that a Christian woman who seeks to embody this is a doormat to her husband. I, I, I know what's being said out there. I know that in every women's liberation movement, whether it be the ones that were in the Roman Empire that women ran the streets shirtless, 
declaring things that women declare today about how strong and capable and free and liberated and powerful and bold they are. We're we're standing up against all the male, hegemonic, patriarchal power structures. No. It's, It's rebels. It's rebels against God's standard of beauty. His design for femininity, it's an insecurity in in, in true femininity. That's what it is. And, And it's interesting that Peter would take Sarah as the example. And people have misunderstood this because Sarah wasn't a perfect woman. And you look at Sarah's life with Abraham and her marriage with Abraham and there's some weird things going on. So it's interesting he picks her. Um, I, I don't think what Peter is doing is commending Sarah for obeying Abraham that, that time where he said, don't say you're my wife, say you're my sister. Because Abraham was scared that he'd, he'd get uh, taken in captive in Egypt and killed. And so he gives his wife over to uh, the harem in, in, uh, in Egypt to Pharaoh. I don't think Peter's going, oh yeah, ladies, be like that. I don't think that's what he's highlighting. And I'm actually, I'm not, I don't just think, I know that's what he's not doing because we have a literary clue here that connects this passage to Genesis 18. Peter's highlighting a different time she obeyed Abraham when she actually called him lowercase Lord in Genesis 18. Remember the angel of the Lord comes to Abraham and and the angel's telling Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. And Sarah's uh, overhearing this and listening, and she knows she's way beyond childbearing age, she's barren, and so she kind of uh, laughs to herself. And in, in a whisper, kind of a, a, a throwaway statement, uh, under her breath says, my Lord is old. My Adonai is old. It's just a throwaway statement. But I think that's the point. I think that's Peter's point. That even in her moment where she wasn't even really trying to honor Abraham, she did. Her default knee-jerk reaction was to give a culturally honoring term to her husband. And I think Peter's saying that's commendable. That's commendable. Wayne Grudem and John Piper define submission like this. Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership to help carry it through according to her gifts. It's the disposition to follow a husband's authority and an inclination to yield to his leadership. And I think that's what Sarah did with Abraham. And I think that's what all holy women who hope in God will do as they follow in Sarah's path. And this leads to the, fa- uh, the sixth. I'm going to add a sixth point here because um, I want to look at verse 7 to end on. We'll call this the wife's exalted status. And there's an argument. I want to just hit this at the end here. There's an argument that some would say if a wife really were to take that posture of submission, a husband will abuse that. And here's what I would want to say to that. Some will abuse it. And do you know what verse 7 warns about? 
God won't hear that man's prayers. Oh, he can abuse that and and God shuts his ear to that man. But others, if she takes this posture of submission, a gentle and quiet spirit, verse 1 says, others will be saved. Others will be saved. Those who do not obey the word can be won without a word by the respectful and pure conduct of their wife. So she might save her husband by doing this. Verse 7, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way or according to knowledge, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. It's really shocking to me and and disturbing to me that people will take that verse and they'll say it's demeaning to a woman. It's actually a value statement of her exalted status. Let me give an illustration. Uh, let's say that I'm, I'm invited to uh, someone's home. He has a mansion, very wealthy man. And he's a collector of, uh, he's a collector of, of fine vases. And he has this rare antique vase that, I, that he's asked me to come see. It's in this glass case back in a, a locked room. In order to get there, I must walk through his front yard and there's some men out there working in the garden and they've left this garden shovel this metal old garden shovel. And I walk by it and don't pay much attention. I go in and I look at this vase that's in this, uh, this glass case. Priceless, valuable, worth millions. And what if I looked at that and I said, oh, it's a weaker vessel than the garden shovel outside. It's <laughs> the point. Someone who knew anything would say, that is the point. That it's a weaker vessel. It's a priceless antique. The garden shovel is replaceable. It's a piece of metal. The, the weaker vessel here is, is to, for us to see the value of the thing signified. A woman. It, it, it's her priceless value. Weaker vessel isn't derogatory. It's, a, it's showing her distinct glory. Uh, Peter's not an immature 7th grade boy after beating the girls in soccer who goes, oh yeah, because they were weaker vessels. It's not, what he's, he's not, it's not derogatory. He's marveling at the woman's value and saying, husbands, protect her value. She's priceless. She's beautiful. She's rare. Proverbs 31.10, an excellent wife who can find. Her worth is far above rubies. Proverbs 18.22 He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Proverbs 19.14 compares a man to finding riches and treasure as a man who finds a prudent wife. Proverbs 12.4 A man of noble... Oh, I'm sorry, a wife of noble character is her husband's crown. His glory. His crown. Brothers, if you are not honoring your wife, you're dishonoring her. Those are the only two options. She's to be honored. And if a wife wants to be more honored by her husband, here's a little advice. Respect him. Because these things play off each other more than we often realize. And I've seen, I've seen a lot of marriages where a husband would say, even if she doesn't respect me, 
I'm going to honor her. And you know what that does? It begins to change her often. And I've seen wives who say, even if my husband doesn't honor me, I'm going to respect him. And it begins to change the man. This last phrase, I want us to lead us to the table in verse 7. It says, they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Say, what's the rest of this marriage series about? That verse right there, that little phrase. Co-heirs of the grace of life. Uh, As we come to the table, that that little phrase being co-heirs of the grace of life, it is true of marriages, of husbands and wives that were co-heirs of the grace of life. It's also true of the body of Christ. Listen to this verse to, to, to lead us to the table. Galatians 3.27 As many of you have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So many people try to use that verse to erase everything that we've studied about gender the last six weeks. Sorry, you can't throw out 50 passages because of that. But what you can do is you can see that in Christ, men and women are on equal ground. Co-heirs of the grace of life. And that's what this table does for everybody in the church. It's the great equalizer of races, of genders, of parents and children of young and old, of wealthy and poor. It equalizes husbands and wives. It puts everyone absolutely dependent on the grace of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's come to the table. These things in mind. Uh, If you're new, I'd ask you uh, to to be baptized and, uh, and believing in Christ. That's the view that we hold as a church to come to the table. If you'll be refraining Uh, There's some really meaningful prayers in your bulletin that you can pray during this time. Let's come and prepare yourself to take the supper together. Father, co-heirs of the grace of life, what an amazing gift that you would take men and women, distinct glories, and you would make us one in Christ. Lord, we thank You for the Gospel. We thank You for the power of Your Holy Spirit. Lord, there's no reason that any woman or man should be discouraged if they're in Christ. They not only have been made one with You, but they've also been given spiritual power to obey You and honor You and all that You've commanded them. And so, Father, I pray that You would encourage the hearts of the husbands and the, hus- and the wives. Pray, Father, that You would use all that we've studied to purify us and to help us to live lives that are more pleasing to You. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.